There is a good way and a bad way to go about it. Bad way. Shouting works. Someone shouts at you and says, get up. There's a, a good way of being woken by a sweet kiss or a tickle. By someone say, are you sleeping? There's a bad way of getting woken up by turning all the lights on. And that's kind of hard on the eyes. There's a, a good way of getting up. It's kind of seen in pictures and movies where kids jump on your bed and they tickle you and say, it's time to get up. There's loud alarms. There's soft alarms. There's shrieking alarms. They all work. No more sleeping. Some people don't need to be woken up. They automatically wake up at the same time every day. How many of you are like that? Do you do that? Yeah, and then it's really fun to watch people get up in the morning, wake up. Like me, you probably heard me say this before, I'm not sure even Jesus loves me until my second cup of coffee. Just saying. <laughs> Maybe you've seen the sign, beware, I'm not a morning person, keep a safe distance. I love that. To wake up implies one has been sleeping or slumbering or resting. Uh, to be comfortable. I'm probably not alone in the attitude of some people about Christmas. If you've been around the church, you've heard the stories of Christmas. You've sung the songs. You've been in church long enough to know the main characters of a shepherd and angels, of wise men and a star, Joseph and Mary, and maybe you even know some of the secondary Christmas characters like Zachariah and Elizabeth and John the Baptist, who are often highlighted at Christmas. Well, Isaiah would have a word for us. He'd have a word for each of us. And that is this word, awake, awake, don't miss them. Advent season literally means a coming or arrival of a significant person or event. And what is coming is the arrival and the birth and the life and death and the resurrection of Jesus. Think about it for a moment. Think about it for just a sec. Uh, Jesus, in literally less than three and a half decades, impacted the known world. If you looked at the known world at that time, Rome was, went as far northwest as Britain. Rome at that time went as far east as Turkey and was all of North Africa. If you look back, that's over 40 countries, today's 40 countries that Rome overseed and they, and they crushed. Israel was just one of the small ones. Uh, it was very clear that if you rebelled, you would be crushed. It was very clear that your country would pay a tax. It was very clear that there would be only one person who would be called Lord, and that would be Caesar. And in this country called Israel, there was a little baby that was born probably in a cave. His teenage m mother named Mary gave birth to a son named Jesus, who would take away the sins of the world, and he took away my sins. As an infant, he was a refugee. He fleed with his folks to Egypt because of the monster Herod possessed by the devil. Read about it in Revelation 12. And then the life and death and resurrection from being totally dead to becoming and is truly totally alive changed the projection of human history. And in 2020, Pew Research estimated that the number of Christians worldwide is 2.38 billion people. 
Isaiah would say to us, awake, awake. Be stirred and aroused to action. Our brother in Christ, the prophet Isaiah, is giving us encouragement to have responsive faith. So this morning, we're going to look at Isaiah 51 and, and Isaiah 52. It's on page 632 if you want to turn to that. It's subtitled this, Everlasting Salvation for Zion. The way the prophet Isaiah uses the term awake means to stir up or to grab our attention for action. To grab our attention for action. So it's, it only makes sense that the, the message is entitled, Anticipating the King. And notice what I crossed out. Not the busy Christmas season, but the wake up Christmas season. Wake up Christmas season. The first verses that we'll look at are from Isaiah 51, 9 through 11. Isaiah will use uh, imagery to tell us that God is awoken and roused to action himself. In fact, he fights a monster. Those aren't my words. That's what Isaiah says. He, and, and, and what's interesting is God would never ask us to do something he himself hasn't done. And that he gives us his spirit to accomplish. He not only rescues us, he ransoms us. The one in the manger worshipped by angels and magi from, e from the east will be the ransom payment. Now the second time that the word awake, awake is used in just one verse is Isaiah 52. And the Lord himself will, listen to this, will dress us in parading garments, in victory garments. In fact, the verb put on is used twice. So we ask, have to ask the question, what does it mean to put on the garments of Christ? So that's where we're going to go. And we read, in Jesus' name, God's life-giving word, page 632. Did you find a copy of the scriptures there? Here's what it says. Awake, awake, arm of the Lord. Clothe yourself with strength. Awake, as in the days gone by, as in generations of old. Was it not you who cut Rahab to pieces, who pierced that monster through? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made a road in the depths of the sea so that the redeemed might cross over? Another word that's used is the ransomed. Those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. You just sang about that, friends. Jump down to verse, chapter 52, next page. Look at verse 1. You got it there? Awake, awake, Zion. Clothe yourself or put on, put on yourself with strength. Put on your garments of splendor. Jerusalem, the holy city, the uncircumcised and defiled will never enter you again. This is God's word. It's alive. It speaks to us. It speaks to us today. Lord, give us ears to hear. And then hearts and feet that act it, that act. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's take a look at just those first three verses and let's come away with this, that God fights for us, and he wakes himself. And we are the ransomed testifiers. 
If you looked at the King James, if you're a King James person, uh, chapter 51 begins with a command that says this, listen or hearken to me, the King James says. Our Father seeks to rouse his people. But sometimes people don't want to be roused. Oftentimes we're too tired or worn out or too busy to have interest in doing another thing. We might get stressed even thinking about having to make another commitment. But God will not ask what he is unwilling to do himself. So as he arouses people after arousing, stirring himself, he works behind the scenes and he tells us to put on strength the arm of the Lord. Now that may seem a little awkward in English, but actually the call is addressed to God himself. He will lead the procession of people to Zion. I've listed two great verses there for you to listen, for you to dig into later, but listen to what Isaiah 40 verse 10 says. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. God fights on our behalf. Now, when we read that passage of scripture, those verses, it might seem kind of odd to you that Rahab was cut in pieces and the monster talk. What in the world does that all mean? Well, good biblical hermeneutics, which is understanding scripture, is basically one of the key understanding scriptures is letting scripture interpret scripture. And so this is not a, uh, a, a cell job other than just to say, if you need a good study Bible, the ESV is a great, great study Bible. And when I try to understand texts like this, I go to the ESV study Bible and it's just loaded with tools and verses that help. So this phrase, Rahab cut in pieces, I thought, what in the world does that mean? Scripture interprets scripture. So Psalm, uh, Isaiah 30, verse 7, says this, Egypt, whose help is utterly useless, I call Rahab, the do-nothing. The New Living Paraphrase says this, Egypt's promises are worthless, therefore I call her Rahab, the harmless dragon. How did God do when he went one-on-one with Egypt? Did, was, was Egypt more powerful than him in the Red Sea and the Ten Plagues? Yeah, some of you are saying, uh, are you kidding? Psalm 74, verses 13b and 14a, talks about monsters and Leviathan. What's that all about? It's this, in Canaanite pagan religion, Leviathan was the name of a dangerous dragon like monsters. And the biblical authors are very clear. We can be confident that God himself triumphs over all powers, even the most feared. Following the prophet Isaiah, Ezekiel came on the scene, a prophet in the exile of God's people. And Ezekiel 29 says this, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, Pharaoh king of Egypt, you great monsters. And as I read that, I started laughing. I said, you do not want to go one-on-one with the big who, God himself. Last week we talked that our children are understanding scripture of saying who is the big who and who is the little who. The big who is the king of the universe. The big who is the one who ransoms us. The word ransom there 
that is used in verse 10 is the word pada, P-A-D-A, Hebrew word. And it means this. It means ransom money. Someone exchanged the ownership of someone, something, to another for the payment of a price. Isaiah 35 verses 8 through 10 says these powerful words. Listen to what it says in Jesus' name. It says this, and a highway will be there, and it will be called the way of holiness. Throughout the book of Acts, followers of Jesus are called followers of the way. Who's the way? Right there. That's it will be called the way of holiness. It will be for all who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about it. No lion will be there. No ravenous beasts. They will not be found here. Only, only the redeemed will walk there. And this is what we have to look forward to. Read this if you can. Read it. Uh, if it's too small, I apologize. Let's read it together in Jesus' name. Those who have been ransomed by the Lord will return. They will enter Jerusalem singing, crowned with everlasting joy. Singing and mourning will disappear. Sorrow and mourning will disappear. And it will be filled with joy and gladness. Wow. So the question is, what's your rescue story? What's your testimony story? The ransom story for my dad was he was a good Lutheran boy from Reeseville near Beaver Dam. Involved. Even on church councils as a young dad. And then the word of God got a hold of my dad and it changed my dad's life. For me, my ransom story was that God used a youth pastor who represented Jesus. He drove a VW thing. If you're a car guy, some of you say, that is not a car, Kirk. He liked the Minnesota Vikings, blame him. And he pointed me to Jesus, and he said, he is one worth following. That's my testimony story. And so I ask you this question. Are you awake? Jesus has fought the devil and won. Jesus has defeated even death. Only sin and holding on to it keeps you from being ransomed and forgiven. It really is worth and, and so I ask you the question, is it really worth holding on to that grudge to prove you're right? Does that addiction fulfill you? Does that pride, does that fill in the blank? Wake up, friend. Jesus will come back. This is the time for mercy and grace. And he offers it to us in a meal. Second thing. This idea about dresses, dressing. Where do we get that? Isaiah 52 verse 1 uses again, awake, awake. It uses parade garments, victory garments. And that's not the only time we hear about that. The book of Exodus chapter 28. Aaron, Moses' brother-in-law, is a priest and he's given garments because they are to represent the one of honor. There are other priests at the end of Exodus chapter 28, little who's, if you would, in comparison to the big who, our father, who are also given garment descriptions. But 
the first people who heard this message, they were in exile. They were still foreigners. And yes, they were going to come back to the people of, back to the land of Israel and build another temple. But mighty Rome and Greece would come. A Greek influence would come, excuse me. Mighty Rome with Greek saturated culture, with religious cults and identities, and that came multiple gods and multiple idols and all kinds of values. How does that play out? That the uncircumcised and the defiled would not come. The book of Revelation tells us at the end of that wonderful book, it says this in verse 27, nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful and deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Wow. He fights for us. He dresses us. And there's a, a, a key word that's used between these two passages, and, and the key verb is this, put on. Put on strength. You heard that in 51.9, and then you see it in verse 52. And so I, I thought about that, and I thought, what would it be like to put on garments? And so there's so many different ways we can go about this. It's certainly not exhaustive. But I thought of a couple, three, and, and so these are printed in your worship bulletin. You can go back and look at them. First of all, if we're to put on that, one of the things that we are to do is to, we are to put on his garments. When we put that on, we have a new master. Romans 13, verses 11 through 14. This is called the lordship of Jesus. It's the opposite of thinking I have a church part of my life, religious part of my life, a business part of my life, a friend's part of my life, a money part of my life, my online, my online part of my life, my up at the cabin part of my life. Lordship means everything. Everything. He's welcomed in all areas. You may say that's a little bit much. Where'd you get that? Well, the book of Romans is Paul's, the Apostle Paul's very first letter. He writes 13 books in the Bible. He writes seven of them to churches. And several years ago, we did a series on the book of Romans. It was called All Roads Lead to Romans. The first part of the book of Romans is all what's called foundational truths or doctrinal footings, like a building. The, the footings for a life of faith as a follower of Jesus in a community of faith called the church. That's the beginning of the book all the way to chapter 12. And then chapter 12 gives us the marks of a Christian community on how to live as a disciple of Jesus. And listen to Romans 13, 11. It says this, Besides this, you know the time, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. You go, whoa, sounds like Isaiah. Yeah. For salvation is nearer to you now than when we first believe. The night is gone, the day is come. So let's cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Master, and make no provision for flesh to gratify its desire. Put on Christ. Question, what does that look like? Listen to what my favorite 
kindergarten teacher says, who I think is really cute. That's, that's my wife. Julie has shared this song with kindergartners for years. Good morning, God. This is your day. I am your child. Show me your way. I think that fits. Yeah, put on Christ. And secondly, means this, a new identity. Again, Paul's letter, he writes to the church in Ephesus. The first half of the letter is all declarative, ground rules, gospel realities in Christ. Then we get to the second half, the call to action. It's the only New Testament letter, the only, it's the only tes- New Testament letter to a church that got recognition in the book of Revelation. The book of Ephesus, they got their doctrine right. They forgot their first love. They got the truth part right. They nailed that. They got the first love lost. Ephesians 4, 22, 25 gives more garment talk. Listen to what verse 22 says. It says this, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, that is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on a new self. What does that new self look like? Created after the the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, therefore put away falsehood. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbors, for we are members of one another. So much talk about identity, right? Hey, it's Christmas time. Need an idea, idea for a Christmas gift? Here's one for yourself. It's called identity theft. The author is Melissa Kruger, K-R-U-G-E-R. Identity theft by Melissa Kruger. You can get it on Amazon or whatever. I got the book, read the book, and I'll give you the cheat line for the book. You ready? Identity theft. Identity truth, identity transforms. I just saved you a book read. Identity theft, what are the lies? Identity truth, what does God's word say? Identity transforms. Put on Christ. Put on the new self. Last one, again, coming from Paul's letters, right? It's a new posture. Paul writes to the church in Colossae. Again, the letter begins with foundational footings, doctrinal truths. Why is that so important? Well, Julian and I have never built a house before, but oftentimes they'll say, hey, we got the footings in, we got the foundation in. You got to have a good foundation, right? So that's what Paul does in Romans. That's what he does in Ephesus. In Ephesians, that's what he does in Colossians as well. So then we come to this this posture that rings so true in our cancel culture intention. Again, Colossians 3, 12 through 14 starts on with this, put on then. We heard the put on in Isaiah. Now we hear the put on in the New Testament. Listen to this. Put on then as God's chosen people, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Verse 13. B, 
bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another. You think that relates to our times at all? Forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so that you might also be forgiven. And then verse 14, talk about kaboom right between the eyes. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Just imagine what it would be like if this body, this church, this group of followers of Jesus would be really good at helping, at saying to one another, help me understand. I want to listen. I want to seek to understand. I deeply desire to hear your heart and your concerns, even if I disagree with you. And when we hear something that's off, we think, what is Biblical Christianity say. Does that pass the smell test of putting on love? Does that smell like putting on love? Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the Spirit of God work in your hearts, convict you like it convicts me, and say, God help me. So let me conclude with this. One devotional writer said this, it is God who rouses you, awakens you, stirs you, because he has stirred himself. And he came just at the right time. And he'll come again just at the right time. So you may be suffering, distracted, tired, or worn out, but God himself is fighting for you. And somewhere in the heavenly wardrobes of the kingdom, they're awake, drawers full of beautiful garments, fitted and prepared for you. And when the time comes, and all the seals have been opened, and all the bulls have been spilled out, and all the trumpets have been blasted, the king will return. <laughs> and you and I will be clothed in splendor, and the parade of Zion will begin. He fights, he dresses, he wins. Count on it.